You're listening to KTO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told November 13th at Northern Light United Church. The theme was In the Dark. Live music was by Luke Welt. first speaker is Erica. Erica Partlow-Smith is a proud mother of several delightful human beings. Married to a glacier-loving, clab-slaying Canadian and recently became a grandma. She was born at Bartlett Memorial Hospital in December 1976, sent home in a Christmas stocking. She is mostly lifelong Junoite, off and on Douglas Islander, has been a proud North Dugger since 2006. She's bursting at the seams with 40 plus years of stories you will not believe. Ask her, she'll tell you. And she has strong feelings about when, what, how, and where she wants to eat lunch. Please welcome Erica. Okay, so just shy of 22 years ago, I gave birth to my first child, Serena. That is not the story I'm going to tell. That is a story involving a Learjet, a snowstorm, and a nurse in Seattle telling me, be quiet, people are trying to sleep. True story. Anyway, this one begins a few months later. So Serena was three months old when I learned the hard way that breastfeeding is not effective birth control. Yay, another baby. Anyway, I had been told that if your second pregnancy feels really, really different from your first pregnancy, then you're probably having a girl if you had a boy and vice versa. So everyone just assumed I was having a little boy. And we were trying for a home birth, just like with Serena, and everything seemed like it was going well. He was growing. We were doing well. And the midwife said, you did have an early baby for your first one, so you probably should at least be prepared in case it happens again. And of course, much to my chagrin, I went to labor at 32 weeks. They like you to be giving birth at 37 weeks. So this was far too early for my dream of home birth. I slowly and dejectedly made my way to Bartlett and said, yes, this is happening again. And they weren't as concerned this time as the first time, so they didn't feel the need to put me on a plane, but they admitted me and said, now, we're gonna do everything we can to keep the baby in for as long as possible because he needs to grow and mature and you know, we don't want the mess that happens when you have a tiny baby, it's very frightening. So I said, fine, whatever. And they put me on complete bed rest with very heavy doses of muscle relaxants. So I couldn't move <laughs> at all. <laughs> and uh, I laid there bored out of my mind and pretty scared for eight days. But one of the things that happened during that time, which I thought was sort of funny, I was a little offended, but it was funny. The nurses would come in and I had this huge monitor 
on my huge belly. Well, there were two. One was for the contractions, and one was for the baby's heartbeat, so they could make sure he wasn't in distress. So a nurse would come in, she would find the heartbeat, then the next nurse would come in, he would find the heartbeat. Well, one time, a nurse came in and found the heartbeat right down here on my left side, under the baby, and then the shift changed, and the next one came, and she found the heartbeat way over here on the right side under my ribs. And I said, well, that's weird. I didn't feel anything happen. There were no gymnastics between when you did it and you did it. And they said, you know, you're going to have to trust us. We're the experts. We do this all the time. It's totally normal. And you're really young. And basically, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't worry. So I was a little offended, but I just let it go because I couldn't really move. After eight days of torture, everybody agreed that it wasn't going to work. The baby decided he was ready. So we flew to Providence Hospital in Anchorage, and the first thing they did when we got there was a routine ultrasound. We hadn't had our own ultrasound because we were going for a home birth, so, and we didn't want to, but at this point, whatever, just help my baby. And uh, the doctor was looking at the screen, and he said, oh, they're fine. Go ahead. <laughs> so my husband at the time got this very serious look on his face, and he said, we've just been through a really difficult eight days, and we have a daughter at home who is 11 months old and doesn't walk yet. So please don't joke. <laughs> the doctor looked confused. <laughs> and he said, what? You haven't had an ultrasound yet? Oh, well, I'm looking at a screen with two babies looking at each other right now. Do you want to see? And we both, you know, obviously were terrified and said, okay, show us. And my husband said, nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. That is not two heads. It's a butt. <laughs> it looked like a butt. Then reality hit, and I watched him literally turn gray. I didn't know that was a real thing. He turned gray, he sat down, and has never been the same. <laughs> then the doctor said, well, would you like to know the sexes? And my husband was basically catatonic at that point, so I just nodded. And he said, well, I see two, but at this point in the game, there could be three or four. We don't know. I mean, they're, you know, all I can see is what's right there. But what they appear to be is identical twin girls. They said, you know, twins actually are born early usually because being womb mates causes them to get stressed and they mature a little bit faster. So go ahead. There was no reason for the eight days. Have them. Well, I was not ready. And I needed a couple days to kind of get my wits about me and, and get my husband back to functioning. And I remember realizing we don't have any names for a girl. Now we have to come up with two. And we were the kind of couple that had very, very different opinions about things. So I remember sitting in that cafeteria in Providence, arguing heatedly about what their names would be. But I was eating such good food. I loved the food. So there was that. Not what I expected at all from hospital. So 
We made it about three days and then we're told one of the babies was being shrink wrapped while the other one was getting all the nourishment. So I said, okay, I agree, we'll have these babies tomorrow morning. And I thought about it really hard and I decided I did not want to spend the entire day in labor. So I got in there the next morning and just before they stuck that Pitocin drip to get things going into my IV, I announced, I plan to be done in time to go sit in your cafeteria for lunch because <laughs> I like your food. So they all laughed and did basically the same thing that the nurses did to me in Juno and said, oh, you're a young woman and twins take a long time. Don't worry, we've got control. And I decided I wasn't going to tell them this is not my first rodeo, guys. I have done this before. I know what I'm doing. So basically, the labor and delivery was a riot. It, the room was filled with people. Each baby had her own team of people waiting, just in case. And then there was a third team, because just in case, there was more than two. <laughs> anyway, that was really funny. Everybody laughed and joked the whole time. It was actually really fun. And the best part of all was the end when the doctor said, I win! I was right! They're identical! And he held up the placenta. See? See? <laughs> The last thing I remember from the labor and delivery room is that they were passing the babies through this like square hole in the wall. And there were these two little pasty white alien monkeys covered in black hair with huge black eyes mewing like kittens. That I thought, okay, here we go. But I was hungry. So I turned to my husband and I said, it's 12.30, let's go eat lunch. <laughs> okay, next up is Peter Nakamura. Peter lived in Oregon in 1934 until the family was incarcerated in a concentration camp in Idaho in 1941. Between 1969 and 1974, he lived five years in Anchorage and Bethel. He moved to Juneau from Oregon in 1991, but packed lightly, thinking that he would be gone in a couple of years. Politics generally shortens 10 years of medical directors in most states, but after 10 years with the Hickel and Knowles administrations and 27 years in Juneau, he finally admits that this is his home. Evening. You know, in 1965, a bit after the war, first war, there was a 17-day war in between India and Pakistan. Sounds like a short one, but there are thousands of lives lost on both sides. Most of the fighting was around the city of Lahore, a city of millions of people. The uh, cannons were going off. In fact, the Indians army advanced up to the airport in Lahore before the fighting was over. The U.S. government, fearful of the Americans in Pakistan, sent two large planes into the Lahore airport. The Peace Corps volunteers and the staff 
only with flashlights in their hands in the dark, loaded all the dependents on the plane. While the cannons were firing in the background, the planes were roaring with their engines ready for a quick takeoff. We were really happy when the planes rose up into the dark and headed straight west to Iran, where they were welcomed. Well, before that happened, we were confined to our homes. Now, confinement takes a different definition no matter how you look at it. Back in 1942, we mentioned 41, it was 42, my family and I were moved from Oregon to Idaho into some de desolate badlands with sagebrush and tumbleweeds. We were there for three years. They put us into these tar-papered barracks. We were surrounded by barbed wire fences. We had guard towers with American soldiers up there pointing their weapons at us. Now, it was so much different in Lahore, where we were under confinement. We were watched by the Pakistanis in the dark. We had a, a canal bank and a dirt road right in front of our house. If any light leaked out, we would fear, hear the rocks pelting our walls and people shouting, don't signal to the Indian airplanes. Well, I had a special task every night. I was, by the way, the Peace Corps medical director and the physician for the Peace Corps for the past year and a half before that. I had a big house, not a tar-papered house or a barrack, and it was quite a nice house, and it was, had very high ceilings with fans on to keep us cool. And every night, I had a special task. I would pull the ladder down from the ceiling, down to the floor, I would climb up the ladder to the flat roof, and I would look to the east. I would see the explosions, and I would hear and I would start counting as soon as I saw the explosions, 1,000, 2,000. I'm sure you all know that sound travels at 600 miles an hour or about roughly a mile a second. Well, I could holler at the people downstairs and say, go to sleep. They're still six or seven miles away. They haven't advanced any more than the previous night. So they would go to sleep. But this night I was up there and I heard this raucous laughter come up from the hole in the, the roof. And so I looked down, and halfway down that ladder, hanging on the side of the ladder, leaning over and retching his guts out, was one of my hepatitis patients, Bob. He was a staff of the Peace Corps. And as I looked beyond him, I could see a lot of Peace Corps volunteers just laughing their heads off, and that seemed pretty inappropriate that they would be laughing at someone retching their guts out. So I looked a little further to the left, to our bedroom, and there stood my wife, all five feet, one inches tall, 90 pounds, standing there barefoot in her Mickey Mouse pajamas in her hand. She had a great big kukri knife. I don't know if you know what a kukri knife is, but it's a vicious weapon. And that was kind of unusual because my wife was my nurse, a very practical person and not the kind of person that would be entertaining people in the middle of the night in the middle of a war. So I was still puzzled as to why they were all laughing down there, and I looked a little further and saw nothing. But the mystery was solved. One of the volunteers said, you know, Bob was up there retching and, and throwing up and gagging, and, and Lois was my wife. Lois was in the bedroom and heard it all. She came charging out 
with a kukuri knife because she thought you had been captured by the Indian Army and they were torturing you, and she was going to rescue you from that great big bunch of soldiers. Well, that's not the end of it. Uh, you know, you get a little sensitized in wartime conditions. And about four months or so after this all happened, I was asked by the British consulate to give a lecture to their staff about health conditions in Pakistan. I thought, that's fine. I can do that. So I got up in the dark early in the morning, walked around my Lhasa Apso puppy, stepped around some Peace Corps volunteers on the floor, wandered out to a borrowed vehicle. And I say borrowed because my vehicle was in the shop being repaired. Well, I got in the vehicle and I drove to my office because I needed a slide projector for my discussion. It was a peaceful drive, a few dogs barking, a few uh, chicken roosters out there crowing. And so I pulled up to the uh, office, the Peace Corps office, and there are two large stone pillars holding up an overhang. And as I pulled up there, I heard this ticking sound. And you know instantly what it is. It's a, it's a time bomb. That's all it can be. A lot of people still hated us. So I quickly looked in the glove compartment. I felt around the seats. I felt under the um, dashboard. Nothing. So I rolled out of the vehicle onto the dirty, dusty ground, crawled behind the pillar, and stood there and crouched. But then I got to thinking, you know, this is kind of stupid because that wasn't a very strong pillar. It would be rocks blasted at me. And not only that, the overhang would fall on me. So I decided I'd better make a dash for the back of the building. So I thought I'd better take a look at that vehicle before I did that. I just wanted to see if it was in flames or smoking already. And so I looked around and there wasn't no, no flames, no smoke. So I stood up, took my hat off, and kind of brushed the dust off me and made, made a dash. But I didn't dash around the, to, around the building. I went straight for the vehicle to turn off the blinking turn signal. <laughs> Thank you. Our next storyteller is Emily Ferry. Emily spent her childhood on the East Coast and her adulthood in Juneau. She moved here 15 years ago and has left twice to live in Iceland. She and her husband lived there during the winter of 2006 and 2007, fondly remembered by many who were in Juneau that year as Juneau's best ski year ever. Emily and Damien returned to Iceland 11 years later with their three children, this time just for the fall so as to not to miss another epic ski season. It turns out that wasn't a problem. <laughs> Emily's story starts last fall in Iceland, in the light. Please welcome Emily. Thank you. Um, so who here has been to Iceland? All right, a lot of people. Who here speaks Icelandic? Awesome. You guys won't know when I mangle the words I've got in my story. So, as Jeff mentioned, last year we lived in Iceland for the fall. It was October, winter was coming on fast, and we decided to get out for one last mountain adventure. So, we set up our expedition team. It included my husband, Damien, 
our seven-year-old twins, Caleb and Sana, and our nine-year-old, Elias, we also thought it was a good idea to bring two extra kids with us, uh, Isis, who was eight, and Kenneth, who was 12. We had met their mom once. She was going out of town, and we said, oh, yeah, we'll bring them along on this mountain adventure. Sure, good idea. So there we are. Our mission is to get to a cabin that's about 10 kilometers in, and we're going to go up and over Kertling, the largest, uh, tallest mountain in North Iceland. Uh, at least the, the older team is, Damien, Elias, and Kenneth. And the younger ones and I are going to go around the mountain and over the pass and drop down on the backside, meet up at the cabin, spend the night, and then hike out the flat trail back to town, uh, another 10 kilometers. But first, we need to get through the cow pastures and the electric fences, so we stopped to ask the farmer there the best way. And he looked at us, said, so you're going to stand on Kertling with one foot? We are like, yeah, sure. Ugh. What he was really trying to say is, are you crazy? That's a terrible, terrible idea. But culturally, we're a little in the dark here. And so we set out, we're Alaskans, we can do this. And uh, we divide up. I'm going along with the little ones, and we're picking blueberries and finding sheep's horns along the way. Uh, we have to go down into ravines and forward some creeks, and we quickly give up on keeping our sneakered feet dry. In fact, Caleb's little Nikes, the Velcro wore out, so he was losing his shoes about every 10 minutes or so. It's slow going, but uh, Demian, I don't have any way to communicate with him, and I've got all the food, and so I don't want him arriving at a cabin hungry and worried. So we forge ahead, forge ahead. And uh, a couple hours later, I hear, Mom! Mom! But it's coming from behind me instead of in front of me, and I turn to find Elias running to catch up. Uh, they finally realized what the farmer was trying to, to tell them, that the mountain was indeed far too steep and dangerous to climb, especially at that time of year, and they decided to come around and connect with us. So, a bit relieved, we decide, surely the pass is just around the corner, and we should continue. So, there we go, climbing, climbing, climbing. Eventually it's 7 p.m. at night, and we are at the pass. We're standing on a little patch of ice, and a glacier kind of slopes down into oblivion. We don't know, because we can't see. The fog has come in. It's dark. And uh, we decide, hmm, we've gone two-thirds of the way. We could either hike eight hours back to get to the car or continue forward. And we decided to go forward, I think in part because we just knew all we had going for us was the morale and turning around that we, we wouldn't have that. So we, we gingerly make our way across the glacier and onto the mountain. I try not to look down at the turbulent river below us. It's you know, scree and sliding. Just don't think about that. And so... We kind of move carefully, and other senses kick in when you can't really see. It feels a little bit like we're dancing with a mountain as we tiptoe over rivulets and around boulders. The kids ask if I'm scared. 
And I answer honestly, no, I'm not. I evaluate, we've got what we need. We're all together. That seems really nice at that point in time. And it's not freezing and it's not raining. And we know that if we follow this path, we'll make it back to town uh, and, yeah, by daylight, at least. So eventually my prayers are answered. We get to the cabin, and I should be flooded with relief, but instead, after everyone is comfy and fed, I start freaking out. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I take my kids and kids I barely know on such a risky adventure? And it wasn't until the next day that that answer was given to me by Kenneth, who said, you know, I think I preferred yesterday better. He preferred that to the flat, boring trail in the daylight. And I said, yeah, it's not until you're in the dark that you get to dance with mountains and do things that you never thought were possible. All right. Next up, we have Peter Medcalf. Along with his eight siblings, Peter Medcalf grew up at the top of Gold Street. The Medcalfs were among the several families of the Basin Road neighborhood. In the summer of 1967, Peter and his lifelong friends and neighbors, Gary and Jim Rosenberger, began exploring the tunnels of the A.J. Gold Mine. On the evening of Friday, August 4th, the three teenage boys found themselves stuck on the thousand-foot cliff of the glory hole, about five miles behind me near the Perseverance Trail. This is the story of their near-miraculous survival. Peter? Thank you, Tom. Earlier this evening, I was asked what I was presenting on, and I said, surviving the glory hole, kind of questioning look in his eyes, and he said, you mean the souped kitchen on South Franklin? No, this is a rather different story. My friends and I had been exploring the tunnels, the AJ mine, and we'd found an, a new portal into the mine right by the glory hole. And after descending and exploring, and then we found a, a raise, a upward sloping tunnel that had a metal rung ladder that we began climbing and must have climbed for well over an hour. I know we climbed well over a thousand feet, maybe 1200 feet and got to the top began looking around and we were confronted by a flashlight and it just shocked and, and frightened us actually. And then we realized it was a sunbeam. So we broke out of the tunnel and found ourselves on the face of the glory hole cliff. And as only teenage boys could reason, we thought, well, climbing out would be a lot easier than going through those tunnels again. It was a warm and dry August evening and if it wasn't, had it been rainy, I wouldn't be standing here telling this tale. We started climbing and climbing, and it was incredibly dangerous, and we didn't know it at the time, but we'd grab a, a handhold, and it would pull away from us and tumble down to, to the bottom six or 700 feet below us. And the reason was that this wasn't just weathered rock. It had been shattered by dynamite that had created this gigantic pit in the shoulder of Mount Roberts. So. Darkness closed in and we decided we had to stop and we found a place where we could straddle a rock, the three of us. And there we sat. Then about two o'clock in the morning we saw two flashlights coming up Perseverance Trail. Turned out to be our fathers, Smokey Rosenberger and my dad, Vern. 
they got to the rim opposite us and such a big hole that we could barely be understood, but we said, if we're not back by noon tomorrow, send a helicopter. Well, the next morning, we started looking around for the hole we came out of, and all we did was get us into a worse spot. We could neither retreat nor advance. And this spot where we spent the next day, next 24 hours, one of us was able to straddle a rock. The other one was able to lean into a, the cleft of a cliff. And the third could put one foot in front of the other on a rock seam and lean in to the cliff. And we rotated positions, but there we were. So about a couple hours after noon, the helicopter shows up. And man, we're thinking we're getting saved. And we're looking right into that helicopter and the pilot and this photographer who was taking our photos. So the <laughs> we're smiling and waving. It banks away and leaves. Well, we figured it was going to come back soon enough. Well, it did, but it didn't come to us. It went above us. Turned out they were delivering climbers and gear. About that time, our mothers showed up on the other rim with our neighborhood friends and their friends and set up camp. And throughout this whole ordeal, we were really in the dark. We couldn't communicate with anybody. So at the same time, my, our fathers were back home coordinating the rescue and taking phone calls from worried friends. And as I found out much, much later, two of my younger sisters were fighting over my room that they wanted to inherit. <laughs> I kind of got it. We were in a pretty small house. But the afternoon progressed, and all we had was the clothes on our back and flashlights. We had no food, water. We didn't have any gear. And we were getting increasingly desperate. The climbers, all they were doing was kicking rock down on us. Big boulders would bound by us, and rock was clattering down and hitting us, and we had to plaster ourselves against the cliff. And, you know, there was always this helicopter, and we were thinking, why aren't they rescuing us? And we got more and more paranoid. We were having delusions of paranoia that they were really punishing us, not rescuing us. And then... Then we, we started having hallucinations. We saw the most incredible display of northern lights, and only us, only we were enjoying it. <laughs> the campfire that had started up on the rim opposite us turned into a lantern and started going down the, the hall, and we, that completely baffled us. But then the whole cliff shuddered, and we started screaming, begging to be rescued, and all our mothers could do were, was to listen to us, to our pleas, and and pray. Well, we got through the night, and the sun's coming up behind us, and it's coming down the slope of Mount Juno, and we hear this wop, 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 and into the sunlight comes the most beautiful sight of my young life. It was a Coast Guard helicopter. Now, there was only one helicopter in the region that had to come all the way up from Manette, and that's why it was a little bit late on the scene, but it comes over, and next thing we know, it's hovering above us, this gigantic machine, and the pilot later said the rotor tips were only 10 feet from the rock. So the guy at the bay door, he's lowering the metal basket and he signals for one of us to get in. So we hold the basket against the cliff. They give us some slack in the cable. Jim steps in. They take him away. Next, they lower this empty basket. And if he had a bullhorn, what happened next might not have happened. But he just signaled for two of us to get in. So the basket's coming down. We grab it. I get in, get settled. Gary steps in. Nobody's left to hold it. It slides off the cliff, hits a rock, bounces upside down, 
and I'm, this time stops for a moment. I'm looking at the bottom of the pit, Gary's legs splayed in front of me, falling into the abyss. And then the slack catches, and we flip up, and Gary drops into the basket and then bounces out. And he grabs on. He has a death grip, and I grabbed him by the collar, and between the two of us, we got him in. And then they pull us up, and these Coast Guard men, by the way, got medals for heroism following all this. <laughs> Later that morning, I'm sitting at the kitchen table looking at my, my mother, and I'm wolfing down my f first food in days. And she looks at me and she says, Peter, I've been trying to figure out what would be the appropriate punishment. <laughs> she said, but I decided if you haven't learned your lesson, you never will. <laughs> Sweet dreams to all the parents out there. Thank you. listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded November 13th, 2018 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was In the Dark. Curious? Visit us on our website at mudrooms.org. And let's get back into it with our fifth storyteller. Heather Ridgway was an Anchorage girl. She lived in Northern Norway on exchange her senior year and taught English in Japan after college, but she always came back to Alaska with renewed appreciation. Between semesters at UAA, she commercial fished with alley drift netters in Bristol Bay and volunteered with biologists in the Noatuk National Preserve. She fell in love with Juno as a design intern with Perseverance Theater in 1994 and finally married in by 2003. Now she has a master's in teaching art and gets to do ceramics, drawing, and painting with kids at JDHS. She's required to take classes regularly to maintain her teaching certifications, and she's here to tell us about the most unusual class she's taken yet. Please welcome Heather. Yeah, so... I've done cultural immersion before, and I've traveled through a lot of Alaska, so when I heard about this Alaska Humanities Forum class that sends urban educators to rural Alaska, you know, cultural sensitivity thing, I thought, oh, I got this, piece of cake. And that's how I got to go to Nepaimute last summer. And Nepaimute means people of the trees in Yupik. And sure enough, flying from Bethel to Antioch, I watched the flat tundra turn into waves of forest and didn't see any sign of people except the airports. I remember leaving Antioch in the skiff and going, those last couple of houses on the river, wow, they look so noble and aloof in their isolation. That's ridiculous. <laughs> if you're Yupik and you build your house on the Kuskokwim, it's like opening your front door to the major highway. And they didn't really forge their own path to be out there on their own, I mean, they built their house on their ancestors' roots, and they live there because they want to be with their community. So, 
who taught me how in the dark I was about my home state and all the rural communities in it. While I wasn't alone on the skiff ride, I was guided by the camp director for Youth Spirit Camp. I was going into Paimute for five days with Audrey Leary. And when we arrived, we hiked our gear up onto a big mowed green lawn that I didn't expect. And a hundred-year-old house at the end of the mowed green lawn decorated all the trappings of generations of happy family living. And Mr. and Mrs. Leary came out, Audrey's parents, her brother, her sister, and a couple of toddlers. Seems youth spirit camp would be held in the Leary's front yard. And the first order of business was Appa Leary's winter travel safety class. So Appa is this really cool word that means grandfather or uncle in Yupik. And Appa Mark Leary was born and raised in Middle Kuskokwim. He works for Search and Rescue, and he helped build the longest ice road ever in Alaska last year from Crooked Creek to Bethel, 200 miles. So he starts off teaching me and 17 children about the cool poles and reflective tape patterns that mark safe passage versus hazards on the ice road. But he wants the kids to check the ice themselves because it's never a good idea to follow somebody else's path blindly on an ice road. Things change fast. And then he started to talk about his search and rescue work and he shared some photographs of people who didn't look for important signs, people who took the familiar for granted. Some of these people were already lost before they left home even. They might have been under emotional stress or the influence of alcohol or drugs. It happens that people freeze very close to their own homes. And the children, the way they hung on his every word, I thought, they know from personal experience the loss of someone to cold, dark disorientation. But then Appa Mark empowered them with an inventory of his travel kit and really cool tricks you can do. Like if you're ever lost in the woods, you can start bending back sticks at the same level and the fresh breaks, the white inside, lights up just like flagging in a headlamp um, when you get turned around on your trail. So that was really cool and I thought, wow, I get it. You know, I was wondering why are we studying winter travel safety in July? But obviously, the cold and dark of the winter can haunt a kid all year round, and any time is the right time to empower the spirit of Kuskokwim kids with winter travel skills. So then, he wasn't the only appa I met. We hosted an elders panel, and lots of appas came and talked for a while, shared their wisdom. Appa Eric talked about winter or wilderness travel safety as well. He said, when you go out on the land, be respectful. Don't be rushed. Know your landmarks. Maybe the wind blows snow over your trail. You think you're lost. Don't panic. Do like my appa say. Sit down, make yourself a cup of tea. Talk to yourself like you're talking to someone else. Be respectful, calm yourself, and look around. Maybe there's a tree trying to show you the way. Respect the land that take care of you and respect yourself. Don't expect someone else to come find you and save you. Well, to hear that kind of advice handed down from generation to generation right there in the environment, whew, that was cool. So um, after the elders panel, we went to a little ghost village, little mountain village. It was decimated by disease in the 1930s. 
and there was no houses, many grave markers. We stood in this big, deep, round depression, growing up with grass, and you could make out smaller depressions in the willow around. And Appa Mark explained, this is a traditional men's house. The women brought the food here for meals. This is where Yurak happened, storytelling and dancing. And this is where young men learned how to fish and hunt from their appas. And it was very moving. When we got back to camp, most of the campers had already tucked in for bed, and we were leaving the next day. And I got to hear Appa Mark say, almost to himself, as he looked out over the grass and the river and literally hundreds of miles of forest golden in the sunset. When I was a young man hunting and fishing these lands, I'd sometimes step out and say, this is like I'm the first person to set foot out here. But my people been hunting and fishing and living on these lands for literally thousands of years. There's probably not a square inch out there that hasn't seen the foot of man. So I learned a few things. They seem trite. Listen to your elders. Don't be a know-it-all. But it's deeper than that. I learned that when you listen to your elders and you find a way to apply what they teach you, it's a way to respect yourself. And even appas are still figuring out where they fit on the land and in time. So I got to get over this feeling like I should know everything. It makes it hard to see new perspectives and learn new things. And oh yeah, the Yucatan people on the Kuskokwim, um, they don't just come from there, it's their home and it's a beautiful place to be. Okay, Erin Walker Tolls was born and raised in L.A. where she quietly realized that she needed to escape the city, suburbs, traffic, and sun as soon as humanly possible. She moved to Eureka, California in 1989 to major in philosophy and social sciences at Humboldt State University. There she learned that hippies are real, that she can't tell the difference between the smell of patchouli and B.O., and that she loves living in, the, in that beautiful space where the rainforest meets the sea. She has lived in Juneau 25 years and is so thankful she didn't move to New York to get that Ph.D. in philosophy, shredding the admission letter and wandering around till she found her calling to get her master's and work to help those in need. Erin does a lot of public speaking, advocating for children and seniors for Catholic community service, but this is her first attempt at public speaking without talking about abuse, illness, aging, or death. Thanks. I'm used to being such a bummer that this will be an adventure for me. So I'm from the desert, actually. I'm not from Los Angeles proper. I grew up in the desert. Well, actually, I'm from the suburbs where the desert was being turned into a series of tract housing, condos, and strip malls. Yes, it's as lovely as it sounds. So I was a really shy kid, really kind of timid, didn't try new things, just very quiet, did my studies, that kind of thing. And growing up in the desert, I'm not a desert person, I belong here, because it was so hot. My, all my memories of being down there are just so, it just, okay, so it's like going outside was a trial by fire, because 
it was so hot that before I opened the front door, I put my hand, my palm against the front door and feel how hot it was. Then I'd steal myself and open the door. It's like a blast furnace right in your face. You can't even breathe. It's like you're putting your face in the oven. And then there's the light. It sears your retina. You cannot see anything. It's blinding. It's horrible. So I've never been scared of the dark. I just didn't like the light and the heat so much. So for me, the dark was always a wonderful place and a wonderful time. And it's the place where I could come out of myself and be a little more adventuresome. And my first memories of the night in the desert are me sneaking out of my bedroom through the window onto the front lawn so I could sit and watch the baseball. Now, when I was a kid, I never did sports, but I lived on a really steep hill. And so everything, every lot was on a terrace. And so our front yard was grass that came up to the edge and then basically a cliff. So I would sneak out of my bedroom, six years old, sit on the edge, my little legs dangling over the precipice. And a mile away and down below me, I could see three Little League baseball diamonds and the floodlights because it's too hot to play during the day. So I could sit up there and watch. And it was like I had my own kingdom. They were tiny in the distance and I would see them hit the ball, and I'd see them run, and then I'd hear, yay, because you know, it's like a mile away. And I just loved that, and I had this sense of being the, the queen of all I surveyed, and I just had this moment, of, my first moment of confidence by myself in the yard watching them, and man, was I pissed when they bulldozed all those baseball diamonds down to build another thousand stucco condos. But, so, you know, moving forward in time, the night is when I left the house, the night is when I tried new things, the night is when me, quiet and studious, would run through the hills and not worry about being bitten by rattlesnakes, because it's dark out, and aren't they asleep at night? Don't snakes sleep? I don't know. But we ran through the hills, um, and things got weirder, and I got more confident the older I got. But it was always at night and it was always in the dark. And I was in high school banned because, you know, I, I own my geekiness, we're bandos. And, um, and so we would do halftime shows. Every single home football game, we would get on our uniforms. We're talking up to the neck, down to the ankle, down to the wrist, not just ugly, itchy wool, but with the hat, the shako with the big plume up the top. Yeah, so we'd be in the, in the end zone waiting, waiting for our turn to take the field, right? And um, it's freezing in the desert at night. People, sometimes folks from the desert don't understand. Thousand degrees during the day, zero degrees at night. And so <laughs> we'd be out there freezing and I'm happy I'm in this full world uniform looking that snazzy, but I play the flute. Now the, the trumpets and the trombones, they've got their little mouthpiece and they stick it in their pocket and it's warm. The flute is big and long, it does not come apart like that, but it's cold, my fingers are freezing and as soon as it touches my face, my lips freeze off. So I figure, you know what, who cares, I already look like this. I took my flute, I remember the first time it happened, I took my flute and I stuck it down my shirt. Just. <laughs> head down, straight down the middle, with my tight little, my, my neck, I'm choking myself with it, but okay, at first, you have to scream, because, ah, cold metal on my body, but after that part, it warms up, it's good, and, the th and I felt really confident, I'm like, I'm feeling good about myself right now, I'm stomping my feet to stay warm, and my flute is there, my hands are fine and free, and I look over, and my friend has done it. And then the other one, and pretty soon I have a dozen girls all walking around in our full wool uniforms with flutes coming out of our necks like we have a third, second head or something. 
But it was, again, this feeling of confidence and adventure. And, and um, you know, it got even better at night once I could drive, right? Because then, oh, okay, during the day you get in that car and it's just, it's an exercise in agony. Okay, I'm wearing shorts, it's vinyl, it's a thousand degrees, the car is so hot that my Oingo Boingo cassette tape has literally melted into the vent on the dashboard. No, it never came back out. We just had to like break into pieces. But, so, you know, it's just a miserable experience. But at night, I would be able to get in the car and drive. And the best feeling in the world was the green lights of the dash. And then the cool night air coming through and you could smell the sage and the damp in the air. And I'll leave you with my favorite last memory of summer down in Los Angeles was normally uh, two kinds of weather, hot and dry or hot and smoggy. And that summer we had storms. I don't mean dust. I mean we had thunderstorms. And so I was excited. I had a little Jeep. So what did I do? It started first drop started. I got in the Jeep. Top was already off, and I started to drive. I'm going to follow this storm to the end. And then it's raining, and it's whipping my hair, and it's amazing. I feel free and alive. And then the thunder starts, and I'm like, this is the best. And then the lightning starts, and I'm like, I'm going to find the lightning. I'm going to ride it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to track it down. And I do. I drive into the distance. I drive 50 miles in the middle of the desert. I'm the top of a mountain on a fire break, sitting on the roll bar of my Suzuki Samurai, and lightning is striking all around me. And I'm like, whoa, oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I jumped back in. I got and I drove off. And it's probably for the best that that was my last summer there because I probably really would have killed myself doing something crazy at night. But it was a wonderful feeling. And every single time that I drive now with the windows down in my car at night, I feel that again. Thanks. Our last storyteller for this evening is Eric Garavsky. Eric grew up in Montana and was exploring the wilderness with his parents before he could walk. Along the way, he developed a style of camping that revolved around taking nothing one would consider essential with him. Because he's so terrible at planning adventures, he decided it was easier to prepare mentally rather than packing materials. <laughs> Things like headlamps, tents, sleeping bags, or adequate food tend to be left at home while objects like car batteries, disco lights, giant speakers, and even massive stop signs make the cut. Please welcome Eric. It was dark. Bet you didn't see that one coming. It was so dark that I couldn't see my hands in front of my face let alone see what was holding me up as my legs dangled into an unknown distance. I was caught on, well, we'll, we'll call her Melissa, or, or rather the memory of Melissa. And the, the memory of Melissa happened to be in the shape, uh, a very awkward memory of um, about a 30-inch stop sign. Melissa was the kind of person who needed no convincing to go bridge jumping at two in the morning, or go camping with nothing other than a handle of whiskey, or float on a questionable flotilla through white water under moonlight. When the news came that the plane she had been in 
uh, was missing. I was working 110 hours and I was not able to join in the search. And in between short breaks, I would check news from a search and rescue only to receive worse and worse news as uh, hope turned to recovery and eventually they were able to find the, the wreck. No survivors, four probably died on impact. Sorry. With a description of the crash site and the coordinates, I decided that when I finally received uh, my first day off, I was going to go and uh, go out to the wreck. I um, One of Melissa's last escapades before she died was to uh, go through an entire neighborhood and uh, stencil some stop signs, uh, actually all the stop signs in that particular neighborhood, so that they now read, don't stop believing. And uh, when I informed my friends uh, of my plan, one of these signs happened to come into my possession. And so I rounded up uh, the friend I knew that would be down for an adventure of this sort to uh, take a stop sign deep into the wilderness uh, outside of Missoula, Montana. And uh, this uh, friend, Mandela, if you have ever heard somebody describe someone as an Amazon, uh, she would fit that description. She's tall and muscular, grew up in South Africa, and uh, we prepare in very similar ways for outings. A small mountain adventure in Montana seemed very trivial to what she grew up with. And so we uh, drove out, got ready. We uh, prepared our uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, with the appropriate amount of dust and pine needles. We had a map. Uh, which was unusual for us. We had two phones, uh, both barely charged, and we had we had a water filter with us, but uh, apart from that, just a camera and a stop sign. And we took off. Now this trail that we uh, had been formed that we should take, we uh, started out, these trails were made back in the 1980s and had not been maintained since then. But uh, it was relatively easy to find our way. We made our way up to this mountain ridge uh, through a couple of blowdowns, but no real problems. And uh, that's when the real problem started, though, is uh, when we looked at the coordinates we'd received and we looked at the description, um, they didn't match up at all, actually. They didn't look anything like what we were looking at from this ridge. And so uh, we decided that there was three valleys we could see and we would descend into each of them until we found the crash site. And we started to descend into the first one and there was no trail now. And uh, this was a clear cut and so the brush that had grown back was the most fantastic bushwhacking you could ever imagine. There was points where we were up five feet walking on brush um, and I felt like very much like an awkward turtle uh, with this giant stop sign on my back. We made very little progress and ended up having to turn around. Made it back up to the ridge, just in time for sunset, and then we stepped in to the canopy of really dense pine trees under a new moon. And now those blowdowns were a lot harder to get around. Uh, they didn't really make any sense. We lost the trail, and we came to a spot where there was a creek. We decided we could follow this creek down the mountain. We could make it down the mountain just by following the creek, 
And with the last bit of light we confirmed with the map, we started to feel our way down the mountain as light disappeared. And all that we were following was the sound of the creek, climbing down steadily steeper and steeper sections. And we start just small phrases. There wasn't really anything that needed to be said at this point. Something like, day trip, and no light, and Melissa. It was just about and lost track of how many down climbs we had made at that point when uh, I went to turn around for another one, and suddenly I'm hanging out over nothingness. I can't feel what is holding me back, and I can't feel anything below me all of a sudden. And just at that point, I hear Mandela yell uh, down below. And I call out to her and hear nothing. Mandela? Nothing. She probably can't hear me over the stream. And so I reach around to figure out what's going on, and I find that um, memory of Melissa is now ensnared in these branches. And I, when I went to turn around, the branches I had pushed down now ensnared me perfectly hanging in these trees. And so I turn around, and I slip out of my backpack, and then I immediately lose the backpack, can't figure out where it is, go around one tree, go around the other, and slam right into it. Stop signs are terrible on the shins. And then I catch up, make it down, get down to Mandela, and I find her in the middle of what immediately represents itself as a massive rose bush. And she had fallen and impaled her hand uh, on said rose bush. And we took some time and dressed it. Uh, we stood up and we realized we could see the road below us. So we make our way down to the road and we hoot and holler and rejoice at being back down. It uh, was only a half mile from the trail following the creek down and it took us five hours to get down. And uh, Mandela turns to me and she goes, you know, Melissa's laughing at us. You're listening to K2O News Juno, 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on November 13th, 2018. The theme for the evening was In the Dark. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit our website at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Alita Buss, Jeff Smith, David Noon, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Luke Weld. I'm Alita Buss. Have a great night.